Take your Bibles and turn to the book of uh, Hebrews to start with, and then we're going to be spending the bulk of our time in the book of um, uh, the book of Deuteronomy. But I want to read a passage from Hebrews because it helps us understand the depth to which the Word of God deals with our lives and with our souls. This is a passage of Scripture which I would encourage you to memorize. And uh, there's another one that, um, if I remember to tell you, um, I would say memorize Psalm 119, verse 11. Um, both of those are two texts which would be helpful uh, to continue to think about God's Word and its um, role in influencing our lives and changing our the direction of our lives. Um, Hebrews chapter uh, 4, verse 12 is a familiar verse, and it goes like this. For the Word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Our God and Father, we come before you today and we... uh, have been focusing on you in many ways, um, your attributes, your characteristics, your divine nature, your um, invisible glory and power, your visible glory and power and might. We have wrestled with the fact that it's almost impossible to come to terms with describing you and articulating you. And yet, Father, you ask us to worship you and to uh, to be filled with what your word tells us about you. Thank you for focusing our thoughts towards you through our singing and through our praying today. And we now pray that that would continue in the word. And as we have prayed particularly and focused particularly on this last part of this verse, Father, would you help us to see in a fresh new way how your word really does go to even the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. We pray this in the amazing name of Jesus. Amen. If you're not here last week, let me give you a very, very short um, summary of the present series. It's a series about our self-talk, our internal dialogue, which is the conversations that we constantly have with ourselves throughout the day and sometimes throughout the night if we're night hawks, and sanctification, which is God's work within us, God's work to make us into his image and to transform us from sinfulness into holiness. And the reality is we talk to ourselves a lot. And the question that I had asked last week and will continue to ask is, does it matter? Do the things that we say to ourselves in our internal dialogue, does it matter? Does it matter to me and my actions? Does it matter to God? The text that we reflected on and and kind of tried to embed in our heart was the one from Psalm 51.6, which says, You desire truth in our innermost being. And we pointed to some other texts which uh, reminded us that the sanctification, this, this work of God in us to make us holy, is something that is not only concerned with our bodies, with our hands, our eyes, our ears, our feet, um, but it's something that also concerns our consciences or our spirits. And so Paul can write that we ought to be worried about cleansing ourselves from every defilement of spirit and of body. There is a profound connection between what you and I say to ourselves throughout the course of any given day and the impact that that has on our conversations, uh, our attitudes, and our actions, and our behaviors. We came to two conclusions at the end of the sermon last week, and they were simply this, that one, holiness of mind matters. That what you put into your head and what you dwell on and what you think about matters to God. 
And then the second truth that we try to embed in our hearts, and I hope you've been thinking about this, is this beautiful phrase that I, again, I wish it was mine, the, the propagandization of our souls. We are always talking to ourselves. We are always propagandizing our souls. Do we speak good and right things to our souls? Or do we feed it wrong and untruthful propaganda? So today, our focus is going to be primarily on the book of Deuteronomy. And on the book of Deuteronomy, for a couple of reasons, that's um, the fifth book in the Bible. So if you start at the, the beginning of the Bible, we're away, you'll find Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book in the Bible. We're going to refer to about four texts in that book, which introduce us to this reality that, that in the course of our day-to-day living, we talk to ourselves. And that what we say to ourselves matters. And there's a theological point that I want to drive home to you and myself, and it is simply this. It's this sort of three aspects to this theological point. One is God knows the content of your heart. God is aware of what you say to yourself and the dialogue that you carry on with yourself moment by moment throughout the day. Secondly, the content of that dialogue matters to God. It's not just a question of positive-negative or of good-bad, but it's a question of right and wrong. Does what I say tend toward sin or tend towards righteousness? It matters to God. And then the third point of the sort of the theological focus is that we can change that dialogue and bring it into line with what is to God, and so we can sanctify that inner dialogue. There's a couple of points that I I just want to make, and and they're helpful for me. I hope they're helpful for you. Uh, But there's assumptions that that provide the foundation for this notion of um, changing or sanctifying our self-talk. The first assumption is simply there is a God. That makes a huge difference to whether or not we ought to be concerned with what we say to ourselves on a regular basis. There is a God. Why is it a necessary assumption? Well, because what you believe about God and what you tell yourself about God will influence the way that you live your life. We'll be looking at this next week, and I've already forgotten the title of the message next week. It has something to do with talking to yourself um, um, when you don't have any account of God. It's in your bulletin. Um, But the fool says in his heart, there is no God. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. We will look at some texts which will say that kind of thinking, that kind of internal dialogue will have a profound impact on the way that you live your life. On whether or not you think God sees you, whether or not you think God knows about you, whether or not you think God cares about you. So if that's the case, then the reverse is also the case. That if you believe in God and you understand there is a God, it will influence what you say to yourself. There, the Bible says, in the beginning, God. The assumption is just that there is God and that, that He has always been. A little bit later in the, in the biblical text, um, in Hebrews, it says, without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and rewards those who seek Him. So again, if the, if the disbelief in the existence of God impacts our lives, then the belief in the existence of God impacts our life. And I think there is no more um, pertinent study that you can ever undertake in this matter than the study of God. 
to read what the scripture says about him. How does he reveal himself? What does he tell us about himself? What is his character? What are his works? What are his ways? What does he desire of us? That will profoundly shape the things that you say in your own hearts and life. The second thing, the second foundation, which is, which is, I think, equally critical, is not only there is a God, but that God has revealed himself to us. If God hasn't revealed himself to us, then how do we know what is right and what is wrong? How do we know what we should say within ourselves and what we shouldn't say within ourselves? And so the real gift of God to us is that he has revealed himself to us. He has spoken him, he has spoken to us. He has made known his ways to us. He's done it in so many different ways. I'm just realizing that my notes are all out of order and I'm going to be in a real mess in a couple of minutes. So just bear with me as I sort them all out. I don't know how this happens. I usually check it before I get going. So you might be scared when you see all these pieces of paper. We're going to be here all night. I'm just missing page five. There we go. Anyhow, God revealing himself to us. He has revealed himself to us in many ways. He's revealed himself to us in creation. You know that, don't you? The, the, the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. The book of Romans tells us that the invisible attributes of God are revealed in creation around us. It takes a, a very determined heart to look at this world and say, Ah, it just happened. But in everywhere we look, we see the handiwork of God. So God has revealed himself to us in creation, as Charles Spurgeon used to call that, his workbook. He's also revealed himself to us in his word book. This is the word of God that we have before us. It is a gift of God to us. And this is why we should be concerned about Bible translation for people who don't know the word of God, because in here, God reveals himself to us. He reveals our need of him and he reveals the solution to our problem, which is sin. This is a gift, loved ones, to treasure. And so God has revealed himself to us in his word. He's also revealed himself to us through the image through which we have been created. What does Genesis say? That God in the beginning, God or God created man and woman in his image. That image is marred. It's been, it's been wrecked by sin, but it's nonetheless still there. And so as we look at ourselves and we think about how we function and how we act, as we look around to other people, there is the image of God that is stamped on them. And so, in a very real way, God has revealed himself to us in our persons. He's placed within us a conscience and an awareness of him. He's revealed himself to us in his son, Jesus Christ. Somebody says, show me God. I say, okay, look at Christ. The historical Christ. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In him all the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. You look at Christ, and you will find God. Revealed. And then I think he's also revealed himself to us in the longings of our hearts. I've quoted this many times. I'm Augustine. The heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. It's like there is a compass within us, a soul compass, and it points north, which is God. And, and, and that there's this, this constant wrestling and shaping and turning of our life, and the compass is trying to swing us to God. And when we find him, that restlessness abates. He also talks about in Ecclesiastes, 
He has placed eternity in the hearts of all men. Why do you, when you go to bed at night, even before you were a follower of Christ, and even now, why do you, when you go to bed at night, wonder what happens when you die? Wonder if there is more to life than life here on earth. Well, it's because God has placed that within you. And so God has, I believe, revealed himself to us in the longings of our heart. So by him revealing himself to us, I guess the point of what I'm trying to say there is that then God reveals to us what he desires us to be and how he desires us to live and how he desires us to act. And so those are foundational to a desire then to sanctify what's going on in our spirits or in our thoughts and intentions of our heart. So why do we need to give attention to our self-talk? There's a couple of reasons, um, and I, I just throw these out for you to think about. We need to give attention to it because it is often self-centered. We are prone to thinking only of ourselves. It's often bent towards the sinful. It's just the, it's the bent of our flesh. And so if we're not aware of it, if we're not on top of it, we will find ourselves speaking things that are not only not true, but are sinful. We ought to give attention to our self-talk and our inner dialogue because of its immediate impact on our attitudes, actions, and behaviors. Some of the things that that, uh, somebody else has observed about um, this kind of dialogue is that it tends to be emotionally charged. You can build yourself up up in a frenzy, in a hurry, by what you say to yourself. It is often fueled by a vivid imagination. Like, 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 we, we just blow things way out of perspective and imagine the worst. Uh, another would say it tends towards, and I, I'm gonna have trouble with this word, catastrophizing. The whole world is against me. My kids hate me. It just, it, it tends towards that. It often tends to be irrational and illogical. That's why it is so important from time to time to write it down. You'll be amazed at what you write down. Was I thinking that? It often overgeneralizes. And so for these and many other reasons, we ought to be aware of, of what we're saying to ourselves. So then we come to Deuteronomy. Why Deuteronomy? One of the things that struck me about the book of Deuteronomy, and we're only looking at four texts in the book of Deuteronomy, there's more. But one of the things that has struck me is that it is concerned with the things that we say to ourselves in our day-to-day lives. We're going to look at four specific instances, and I, I hope you don't focus on those four, and I'll mention this at the end and say, well, I don't do that, therefore I'm okay. That's not my point. If that's how you understand it, then I've missed the point. Now, you and I may be convicted by these things, but the point is that I want to make is that, is that there is, God is aware of what we say, God is concerned about what we say, and God is able to help us change what we say. One of the things you will realize, I hope, about these conversations is these are things that we would never dare say out loud. I find that that phrase in itself just a huge check to what goes on inside of me. What we have in here are the kinds of descriptions of conversations that we have with ourselves, but we would never dare say out loud. Loved ones, isn't that just the problem? So the first one, Deuteronomy. 
Deuteronomy chapter 9. And uh, I'm going to read the first four verses of Deuteronomy chapter 9, and, and you will begin to get a flavor of the kind of dialogue we have with ourselves um, on a day-to-day basis. Hear, O Israel, here they're on the verge of going into the land of Canaan. You are about to cross over the Jordan today and to go and to dispossess the nations greater and mightier than yourselves, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of Aniakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? They are going up against some pretty tough competition. Big cities, big men. Are they going to win? Well, God says to them in verse 3, Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. There's some neat truth in there. God is the one who fights for you. God is a consuming fire. He's the one that will destroy them. And you are going to have success as you go into the land. And then look at verse 4. Do not say in your heart. After the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Would you ever dare say that out loud? I just got a promotion at work. You're having coffee with your best friend. And it's because I'm such a holy person. I'm such a righteous person. That's why I got this promotion. You'd never say that out loud. So the things that jump out to me on this particular text, God is aware of what we say. He says, do not say in your hearts. That should stop us in our track. And God, you know that? I didn't tell anybody that. Do not say in your heart. God knows our hearts and he understands the impact of the circumstances around us on our internal dialogue. He knows what we might be tempted to say and then as a result how we might tempted, be tempted to live. And so our day-to-day matter, living matters to God. I was saying to us, what kind of parent or what parent here today on many occasions hasn't said to one or more of your kids at a specific time, don't talk like that. Don't talk like that to me. Don't talk like that to your sibling. Don't talk like that to your friend. Sometimes what we mean is, that's no way to think. Change the way you're thinking. We had a word in our house, worm theology. And sometimes that worm theology would bring it out in, I have no friends. And we say, change that worm theology. I heard a phrase this week, which I'd never heard of, stinky talk. And it's just talk that is no good. It just stinks. It doesn't help you. Um, have you ever said to one of your kids, I know what you're thinking. Don't do that. Yeah, haven't you? You come home dressed um, from a long day at work in your suit and it's a hot day out and the kids have got water balloons and you jump out of your car. Don't you think of that. <laughs> See, as parents, we know what's going on in the lives of our kids. I mean, we're, we're not omnipresent, but we just know by the actions and attitudes and what they're doing, what they're thinking. Well, God knows everything. And so he says, do not say in your heart, the Lord has brought me here to take the possession of this land because of my righteousness. If we wouldn't say that out loud, why would we ever lie to ourselves about that? What arrogance to interpret the circumstances of our life that way. See, loved ones, this example in Deuteronomy is a specific situation in the life of Israelites 
But we could substitute an infinite variety of examples from our day-to-day lives to finish that phrase, do not say in your hearts. Now you fill in the blank. Do not say in your heart this about your spouse. Do not say in your heart this about your children. Do not say in your heart this about your neighbor. And it's endless. But God is aware of what we say. The corrective of that is to then speak truth to ourselves. In this particular case, God had told them a long time before, it's not because of anything in you, it's because of the wickedness of these peoples. That's why I'm driving them out. Their wickedness has reached its height, and so I'm going to punish them and drive them out of the land. Secondly, he's also told them that they're going to get the land because this is the fulfillment of a promise that he made hundreds of years earlier to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then they really needed to speak the truth to themselves, and we don't have time to look at it this morning, but if you read the rest of chapter 7, you'd be shocked. Because in the end of the day, God says to them, you are far from righteous. You are the ones who built the golden calf. Just be honest with yourselves. You're stubborn. You're stiff-necked. You're rebellious. You built a golden calf. It's not a way of condemnation. It's just a way of using truth to check our thinking and our language as we're talking to ourselves. Again, our day-to-day living provides seemingly endless opportunities to engage in this kind of dialogue with God. So, beloved, this is one example, the first example of God's awareness of what we say to ourselves. The fact that it matters to him because he tells us to change it, and then he tells us how. Jump um, back to uh, one chapter back, two chapters back to chapter 7. Here's another example of um, an inner dialogue or self-talk in day-to-day life. And here they are going to encounter, again, nations that are bigger and greater than them. And they're going to be filled with fear. Fear is one of the things that fuels our self-talk. But here in Deuteronomy 7, verse 14 to 19, uh, I'll read it and you can follow along. You shall not be, you shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which you knew, will he, will he inflict on you, but he will lay them on all who hate you. And you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. Here it is again. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and all Egypt, the great trials which your eyes saw, the signs and the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out, So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Verse 21, you shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. Again, there it is, if you say in your heart. God is aware of the tendency of the human heart. He understands how the people here might back away from the fight as they see who they're up against. And the way, though, from fear, there is a way, though, from fear to faith. And there's at least three or four things that God says to them here that they ought to do to change that inner dialogue so their fear becomes faith. He says, remember, first of all, what I've done for you in past. And he takes them back to their deliverance from Egypt, to the great trials, to the great wonders that he's done. And he said, remember, look at how powerful I am. Look at how mighty I am. Look at what I've done for you in the past. Do you think that I'm just going to leave you alone now? 
And then he says to them, remember the promises that I have given you, the promises of my presence, that I am a great and an awesome God. Think about who is your God. Think about what he has promised to you. Think about his power and his might. And then there's one other significant truth, which we have to assume they should have known. And in the first part of chapter 7, it's simply this. That God elected them. He chose them. Not because they were bigger and greater than any other nation. Far from that. In fact, they were smaller than any other nation. But God simply says, I set my love upon you. That's a a stunning statement. The unconditional love of God. Sometimes people are looking for unconditional love. They just want their husband or their wife or their kids or somebody to just love them unconditionally. Oh, I'm here to tell you, you will never find a human being who can ever love you unconditionally. You just won't find it. Because, Because that's not who we are as humans. But you will find that in God. God loves you unconditionally. And that profound truth should have settled in their hearts. If you are a son or a daughter of God, it doesn't matter what the world can throw about you, or throw at you. It will never win. Because you are a child of God. That fact alone should turn our fear to faith. The third illustration in Deuteronomy is in chapter 8, one over. And these two illustrations um, come from the realm of prosperity. And they're significant again, but it, it again reminds us that God is aware of what's going on inside of us. Starting at verse 11. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statues which I've commanded you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied... Here's the start. Then your heart be lifted up. And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble and test you to do good in the end. Here it is. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and my and the might of my hand has gotten me all this wealth. Wow. In times of prosperity, and certainly for these people of the circumstances, God knew that they would quickly tend to forget where they came from and how they got to where they are. This test that the Israelites face is a test that you and I face on a fairly regular basis. How will we respond to prosperity and excess? The right response of this internal test is simply that we praise God, we acknowledge God, we reflect on how God has brought us to where we are, and we continue to thank Him for His provision. I don't know if you noticed that in Barry's prayer today. It was beautiful. As he just thanked God for simple things like water to drink and to bathe in. That's how we protect ourselves from this kind of prideful thinking that God points out to the Israelites. The wrong response is found in verse 17. Not surprising, um, it's their self-talk that puts them in danger. And the long list of verbs that connect with this take care less illustrate this. When you have eaten, when you are satisfied, 
When you have built houses, when you live in them, when everything that you own multiplies. Now there should be a flag and a check that goes off in our head. Do you, do you see how quickly the heart begins to interpret these things? Do you quickly see how the sinful heart begins to look at those things and turns things over in its head? And if we're not careful, we start thinking, well, man, I, I really have worked hard. Wow, you know, I've saved well for this. I'm a really good person. This, you know, and look at, look at that. everything I touch seems to turn to gold. It says, then your heart be lifted up. See, this is where the problem begins. God understands the tendency of our hearts. Instead of blessing God, the, the Israelite heart would be tempted to rise with pride. And a lifted heart is simply a disposition that causes people to take credit for all their successes and to think that their wealth is a result of their own efforts. Uh, my comment would be to all of us, look out when your self-talk is pushing towards pride. Pride is one of the greatest influences of our self-talk. I said in the first service, I, I, I would have liked to have spent my whole time here going through the numerous cases, descriptions in Scripture of people who have spoken to themselves out of pride resulting in disaster. Pride cometh before a fall. I was thinking of this, um, Haman. You guys remember Haman? Haman in the book of Esther? Um, one night, Mordecai, um, or not Mordecai, king, the king had been unable to sleep. King Ahasuerus, he'd been unable to sleep. And so when he woke up, he said, well, bring me the books of history and start reading them to me. That will put anybody to sleep. And as, as these books were being read to them, the story was told of a man named Mordecai, who had, who, had, who had uncovered a plot to kill him and had reported that to the king. And so the king, after he heard this, he says, well, what has been done for Mordecai? And the response was, well, nothing has been done for Mordecai, O king. So he kept mulling that over, mulling that over, and he had determined that he was going to make that right. And so the text says that that he was going to, the first person that came into his court that morning was Haman. And if you remember, Haman was coming into the court that day in order to ask if he could kill Mordecai. And as he walks in, before he could say a word, the king says to Haman, so Haman, what do you think the king should do for, for the person or the man that he wants to honor? Haman said to himself, this is the text. Haman said to himself, who would the king delight to honor more than me? And you know the rest of the story. You might remember the story of King Nebuchadnezzar, who as he looked out over his kingdom, he said, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? And that moment God struck him, and he spent seven years groveling as an animal. Or another king in Babylon who faced swift judgment and a severe indictment, as God says to him, You said in your heart... I will ascend to the heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Oh, pride in our hearts, loved ones, is dangerous. And so Moses continues, as your heart was lifted up, you forgot Yahweh and you said in your heart. And so this is where we come to it again. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. What's the solution? He, he, he says it through this text in 
You can look at chapter 8. It's feed your heart and mind truth. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to do. Don't forget the commands and the exhortations of God to 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 obey Him. Train your man, mind to think biblically about all that you have and all that you are. That song that we sang about the offering was a helpful way to do that. We are simply stewards of what God has given us. Give thanks and bless the Lord. The final text. We've looked at three of the day-to-day circumstances that that can influence our self-talk. One is self-righteousness, one is fear, and the other is pride. The final one here is our day-to-day interpretation of the circumstances around us regarding the poor. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 9 to 10. A few chapters over. I'm going to start reading at verse 7, actually. If among you one of your brothers should become poor... And in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. That's not, oh, your poor brother. That is your poor brother economically. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Here we go. Take care, lest there be an unworthy heart thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near. That's the internal dialogue that God is describing. And you, your eye, look grudgingly. That's the evil eye. That's found a couple places in the text. But you have an evil eye towards your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry out to the Lord against you, and you'll be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because this is the Lord your God, or because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. There it is again, loved ones. God knows the heart. If there be an unworthy thought. Another translation is, if there be, if there be an evil thought. So that's telling me there's more than good or bad. There's more than positive or negative. There is right and wrong thoughts in our hearts. See, God is concerned about the needy. And these verses are set in the context of something that was known as sort of the, the year of Jubilee or the sabbatical year. And it was a year of release when the clock was set backward regarding personal debts. And every Israelite that, that debt, or every Israelite debt owed by a neighbor or brother was forgiven. And so when you went and asked somebody to lend you some money, you knew that in asking them to lend you some money, when the seventh year came around, that debt would be forgiven. And if you were about to lend money to somebody, you also knew that at the end of seven-year cycle that that debt would be forgiven. I think there is brilliant economic policy here. It would guard against how much we borrow because nobody would want to um, lend you money um, if they knew that it would be forgiven after seven years, right? And so people would be careful with the kind of debt that they got into. Uh, There was another point, but it's gone from my head. It'll come back. See, I'm talking to myself. God goes here, and and so the issue here was was this this year of Jubilee. And whether or not one should lend money to somebody who needed money as that year was coming up. So God goes right to the heart here of the rich, and it's disposition towards the poor. And he says, take care lest there be any unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, what do they say? The seventh year of release is near. So what are they saying in their heart by that? They're saying, if I lend him money now, 
there's not a chance that they're going to be able to pay me back. I might as well just give it a gift. That's the unworthy thought. I'm not going to get anything out of this. I'm going to be out of money if I lend him money. See the way the heart works? Now, I might ask you that question for you to fill in the blank because there could be a whole lot of reasons why he wouldn't give him the money. But I simply say this, and then I stop for a minute to think. The battle of the heart here is, what would be the battle in your heart? It says, be careful that there isn't a wicked thought in you. You see, loved ones, in the day-to-day living of our lives, we are faced with just numerous opportunities to reflect on circumstances around us within our heart. How do we do this in relation to the poor? Simply this, remember that God is deeply concerned about the poor and less fortunate in our society. Deeply concerned. That in itself should begin to train our own attitude and internal dialogue towards those who are less fortunate than we. Remember also, too, the blessing of God upon your heart and life. This comes back to earlier. Why do you have what you have? Where does it come from? Does it just appear? Is it because you're such a, uh, we're, we're, we're such good people and such good workers? Some of that, ah, oh, oh, stop. I thank the Lord that he has given me health. I thank the Lord that I have an education. I thank the Lord for a job. But I know in a second, I could lose my health. I could lose my job. I could lose my mind. Some of you might think I've already lost my mind. But there's not a a day goes by, literally, brothers and sisters, when I don't thank God for what I have. Because I know I have it because of what he's given it to me. So why would I look upon somebody who's less fortunate and say, well, you deserve that? Here we are at the end. My whole point of going through this particular exercise in the book of Deuteronomy was to illustrate Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We see that in the book of Deuteronomy. Beloved, we've only done a flyby of four specific circumstances of how our self-talk impacts our day-to-day living. Fear, pride, selfishness, our attitude towards the poor. If now anybody is able to pat themselves on the back and conclude your self-talk is right in those four areas, you've missed the target. You've missed the point of what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to help us understand is this, that God knows what you say to yourself. Nobody else might know. And you might have even convinced yourself that even only you know and God doesn't know. But loved ones, God knows the content of your hearts. And I must admit, I am thankful for that. Because there's nothing I can hide from him. And so I can be brutally honest with God and say, I'm fearful of this, Father. I'm hurt by this, Father. And he's not shocked. I think what I also want you to know is that that matters to God. He calls it an evil thought. He says, beware. 
It matters to God. And then God has provided direction through his word. How we might change that thinking. And so this week you might not have to deal with fear or pride or self-righteousness or generosity to a brother or sister in Christ. But I can say for almost certain that at some point in this week, you're going to hear God say to you, do not say that to yourself. Or you're going to hear God say to you, take care lest there be any evil thought in your heart. And you might say, fill in the blank. Or when God might not say to you, beware lest you say in your heart. I would encourage you, listen to what you say to yourself this week. If you're brave enough, set a timer somewhere. And as soon as that timer goes out, say, I will write down what I've been saying to myself for the last 10 minutes. And then examine it. Is it biblical? Is it true? Is it irrational? Is it illogical? Is it right? Is it wrong? Submit yourself to the word of God because it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. May God help us sanctify our inner dialogue this week. Amen.